Hi there, I hope you're well. Welcome back to the Think Curiously podcast. Now before I get stuck into this week's episode, I wanted to say a huge thank you for all of the comments, the likes, the shares and the feedback given to last week's episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, then maybe you'll head back after you've listened to this one and let us know that you've done that through commenting and sharing on social media as well. It'd be great to hear from you. Now after reading through the comments and the DMs, I was instantly struck how often the word relatable was used or phrases that would be protruding towards the word relatable. One comment on Facebook had stated that she felt that she was with me every word, step by step. She felt the flow of the poem. One DM that I got on Instagram read that this person listened to this word for word. It completely drew them in. They continued by saying that they have no experience of mental health exper- mental health issues themselves, but that this gave them such a great insight into what so many people deal with on a daily basis. And I guess when I got that one through, when I read that, that was the the most powerful comment I've had yet in 77 episodes because I set out to write that poem and I spoke to those 10, 10 men to try and get their message across, to try and make it relatable, to try and get other people to understand what they're going through on a daily basis and put it in language that it really does hit between the eyes. And and, and my brief, as I said last week, was not to create something airy-fairy, not to create something that was green grass and bright blue skies and sunshine and to really tell the dark the hurtful side, the negative side of mental health issues and what these men were actually going through and still do go through. So I guess when I got that comment, it made me really sit up and and feel right, okay, it's it's working. This is starting to promote that conversation. And listen, I'm not doing that. I'm not telling you this just to to boost my ego or to get a pat on the back and say, well done to myself. I felt I needed to share that. I need to share these comments just to show you and others how the impact of your words or what the impact of your words can have on others. And it might make you and others just listen that little bit more carefully the next time you're speaking to somebody. You know, you listen to what they're actually saying, what emotion they're speaking with. Is there anything that they're saying that doesn't seem quite right or that maybe is out of character, maybe the tone of their voice, maybe the the expression by which they're speaking doesn't match the expression on their face. So for you to take a real understanding of that and to pay attention to it. And I guess if the poem can allow you to do that, and again, if you haven't listened to it, I'm not not trying to push my own work here. I'm just saying that it really was that powerful for those few people that got in touch with me. I really do think that we need to keep this conversation alive. And on that note, if you could, after listening to this, if you could head over to the Zachary Geddes Break the Silence Trust across all the social medias, Give them a, a, a like, a follow, a retweet, a reshare, just to help spread the great work of the news that there are the work, I should say, of, of the great. I'm, I'm currently mixed up there. I don't know what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that you need to spread the work that they're doing because it's such, it's for such a great cause and it's, it's making a real impact in people's lives. And of course, if you've got anybody out there who needs, who you feel needs to speak to somebody or you, you yourself need to speak to them, they're contactable via email, by telephone. You can DM them. I'm sure Yasmin and one of her team will be be happy to help you in any way they can. And I know we've I've said it in past and previous episodes. I've said it in social media posts as well. But the more conversations that we have like this and get out there in the open through podcasts, through blogs, through poetry, through whatever medium it is, I think we can really do something important and we can do something meaningful and 
essentially I think together we can we can help break that silence and show people that it's, it is okay to speak up. Now I'm unsure how I'm going to transition from that more serious tone into a tone that does justice to what I want to speak about now. The podcast episode this week is about connection. The title is Connection is Lost. And before we really dive into the main body of the podcast, I want to try a thought experiment on you. And I want you to allow yourself to actually be involved in this thought experiment. Listen to what's being said and try and draw some conclusions as to what the thought experiment is trying to get you to think about. Now picture this. It's the year 2049 and your son or daughter is having a therapy session. But that therapy session isn't with a human, it's with a robot. Considering that we have self-driving cars here in 2022, I don't think it's too much of a far stretch on our imagination to believe that in future years we're going to have robots taking over more and more human jobs and maybe one of those might be a therapist. And I guess our computers now, Google, is essentially our doctor, right? We have this thing about Googling, Googling our illnesses to see how close we are to death. So if we can do that via Google, why can't there be a therapist robot in the future? Anyway, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing here. So the thought experiment comes from the book A Note or Notes for a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. They go like this. The robot therapist says, So what is the problem? The child? Well, I think it was back to my parents. Really? My dad specifically. What was the matter with him? He used to be on his phone all the time. I used to feel like he cared about his phone more than me. I'm sure that's not true. A lot of people from that generation didn't know all the consequences of their phone use. They didn't know how addictive they were. You have to remember, it was all relatively new back then, and everyone else was doing it too. Well, it gave me issues. I used to think, why aren't I as interesting to him as his Twitter feed? Why wasn't I as good to look at as a screen on his phone? If only I didn't feel like I had to distract him to get attention. This was in the days before the 2030 revolution, of course. The robot therapist. Hmm. Where's your father now? My son? Oh, he died in 2027. He was run over by a driverless car whilst trying to find a funny gif on his phone. How sad. And what have you been doing since then? I invested in a robot dad. I looked into all the hologram options, but I wanted a dad I could hug. And I have programmed him to never check his notifications. He's there when I want him. Robot therapist. That is so wonderful to hear. Now, as I said before, I came across that in a book called Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. See, there's a reason why I started the episode with that thought experiment. And if you give it a few moments of consideration the realism starts to slowly sink in. That is a child speaking to a robot therapist about how the father was more invested in the mobile phone than them. They were made to feel like, why were they not as attractive or as interesting as the mobile phone? That child in that scenario is a child in today's world, essentially. And when he talks about his father dying in 2027, and then he talks about buying a dad robot, so that he could build the logarithm to the dad that he wants, which is someone who's in their life and gives them affection and realizes that they exist. It's quite powerful, isn't it? Now I'm going to let that marinate just for a second. In this episode, I'm going to explore the hypothesis 
that we live in the most interconnected society there has ever been, but that all that interconnectivity has left us lost. In essence, our connection has been lost. But before I attempt to answer that, just let me digress. I'm sure you've heard of a six degrees of separation, right? That the theory suggests that because we are all linked by chains of acquaintances, you're just six introductions away from any other person on the planet. Now, I get it, that does sound a little bit crazy, but here's the thing. In 2008, Microsoft released the results of a study that they had been conducting since 2006. And they decided to try and crack, or at least test this theory. What they'd done was they studied billions of electronic messages. They worked out that any two strangers, on average, are distanced precisely by 6.6 degrees of separation. So basically, putting all the facts fractions aside, that, that means that by a string of, say, seven or fewer acquaintances, you could be linked to anyone like David Beckham, like the Queen, Ronaldo, Will Smith, whoever it is, anywhere in the world by less than seven acquaintances. Now, back then, when the research was being done, Facebook was in its infancy. So what they done was they took Microsoft Messenger, the instant messaging network, and if you're, I don't know if you're over the age of, if you're under the age of 16, you're probably not going to remember Microsoft Messenger, but it was absolutely huge. It was equivalent to roughly half the world's instant messaging, messaging traffic at that time, right? So Facebook Messenger wasn't actually involved. There was actually Yahoo chat rooms, if you remember those as well. You remember actually going, I remember going to the kitchen, trying to fire up the big compact computer, making sure nobody else was on the telephone line at the time. And it was after six o'clock, whatever the peak time was, and then the, the whole dial-up noise would happen and he would sit patiently waiting as the wee three dots and the Yahoo chat rooms would load up. And then you got to speak to randomers all over the world. But anyway, um, the concept of the six degrees of separation was, it was popularized in about 1990 by a play called Six Degrees of Separation which was eventually turned into a film, and I think Will Smith might have been involved in it as well. But the interesting thing is, in the play itself, one of the characters says, I read somewhere that everybody on this planet is separated by only six other people. Six degrees of separation between us and everyone on this planet. The President of the United States, a gondola in Venice, just fill in the names. They're only six degrees away. I find it extremely comforting that we're so close. I also find it like Chinese water torture, that we're so close because all you have to do is find the six right people to be connected to. I am bound, you are bound to everyone on this planet by a trail of six people. Now what's interesting about that is this was 1990, Microsoft Research was in 2006, eventually published in about 2008. But as we'll find out as we go on, there's earlier research and more of a randomised study was done. It was around 1960-odd, but that was, as I say, we'll get to that. But one point I want to make is that the world is, as we know it, constantly in a state of, of both evolution and destruction. Evolution in terms of technology, destruction in terms of what we're actually doing to the world with all the natural resources that we're bringing up out of the, out of the Earth's core and from the surface of the Earth and pretty much destroying the atmosphere that we live in. Some may argue that this destruction is just a consequence of evolution, and there's others that will probably argue that the destruction is a necessary part of evolution. But what if we zero in on that element of evolution just for a second and take, as I mentioned before, technology, which has rapidly changed our life. And I, I guess we can safely say that the internet is undoubtedly one, if not the single biggest player in that change, in technological change. 
in our society. But if you take, for example, something as mundane as TV and film, right, back in the day, back when you were a youngster, you watched your TV and that was pretty it. In Northern Ireland, it was channels one, two, three, and four. And maybe if you're lucky in certain parts of the country, you get channel five and maybe RT. Uh, and then when you're old enough, maybe you went down to, we had Extra Vision and Coleraine. There might have been Blockbuster where you were to go and rent out a tape. You paid for the tape, got it for a certain length of time, had to return it back. And then after the tape came DVDs. After DVDs, what Sky came along with all of their hundreds of channels, then they had Sky Movies. And then eventually the pausing and rewinding of live TV to streaming services like Netflix and Amazon. On-demand TV, you had Plus One channels, you had YouTube, and also those wee chip pen drives that your dad's mate sells that has about 2,000 channels to choose from but only work for about two weeks and then they stop working. Now that's not in order of evolution, that is just a number of different evolutionary processes that have taken place in TV and film. Here's one example of something that kind of put me back on my heels and made me realise. It was about 2010 I was in America and I was doing some shopping and I was in, I forget, Stop and Go, I think it was Stop and Go it was called, supermarket and there was a, a red box at the end of the counter where you paid the, you paid for your groceries and walked past it, it looked a bit like something, you know, like a vending machine really and I stopped and looked and it's the first time I'd ever seen a red box and a red box had DVDs inside it and it was essentially a vending machine for DVDs never seen anything like this so you could go buy your DVD or rent your DVD when you came back pop it in the returns section and you know everything was good you got you put in your email address you got an email to say how long it was out for and then an email to remind you to bring it back I remember I took a, a movie out of it and I brought it back and when I was bringing it back I thought this would be a great business idea I'm thinking, I'm going back to Northern Ireland in a few months' time. This would be a great business idea. Imagine if, if Tesco's and Asda and Sainsbury's had a red box. Imagine how much money you could make out of that. People, instead of having to go out of their way to go buy or to rent a DVD and park up and whatever it may be, they can just do that as they buy their groceries. How convenient would that be? And then I went back to America 2013 and went back to the same supermarket and the red box had gone because obviously by that stage Netflix had started to take off and other streaming services and DVDs were starting to probably decline in sales by that stage in the space of three years in the space of three years I've seen this this one thing I thought was going to revolutionise the um, renting of, of DVDs in the film industry movie industry thinking about what I could potentially do if I took this back home imagine the business opportunities that would come from it so two years later saying that it was pretty much a pointless idea to begin with. But at the time, when that conception of that idea was made, I'm pretty sure that they must have thought that this is the way forward, right? Because why else would they have made it? And they must have thought that there was going to be some money out of this and that this could potentially be a long-term project. I'm not, I'm not actually sure who owns the red box or who owned the red boxes, or even if they still do exist in some of the other supermarkets in America. I'm not sure if they do or not, but I would probably imagine they wouldn't be as popular now because of the streaming services. But anyway, listen, I'm, I'm talking too much about that um, but when I when I read that article on the Microsoft research it reminded me on a story that I read in a book called Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell some years ago and in the, the book Gladwell tells a story of an experiment carried out by a psychologist called Stanley Milgram in 1960 and what Milgram wanted to do is he wanted to find the answer to one of the small world's biggest problems 
And that problem was, how are humans connected? And the design of the experiment was pretty simple. He got the names of 160 people who lived in a town called Omaha in Nebraska and mailed each of them a letter with a packet. And inside the packet was the name of address of a stockbroker who worked in Boston and he lived in a place called Sharn in Massachusetts. Each person was then instructed to send it to a friend or an acquaintance who he or she thought would get the package closer to the stockbroker in Massachusetts. Now, if you lived in Omaha and had a cousin outside Boston, for example, you would send it to him on the grounds that even though he doesn't know the stockbroker, he's closer and therefore has a greater chance of getting it to the stockbroker. The idea was that when the package arrived with the stockbroker, Milgram could make a list of all of the hands in which that package had went through. And then he'd be able to establish how closely connected someone from one part of the country was to another who was randomly selected. And what did Milgram find? I'm sure you've probably guessed that by now, but when the package reached the broker, it did so in around five to six steps. This very experiment was the birthplace for the conception of this idea of six degrees of separation. Now I want to bring the conversation back full circle. From what you've heard of what we've talked about so far, we can ascertain that the world is in a constant state of evolution. Today's creation will be tomorrow's old version of something or a previous model or an out-of-date software. That we are possibly connected to anyone anywhere in the world in six connections or less. And that today we hold in our hands and touch 100 times a day and look at too many times a day, have so many different apps on it, so many notifications going through, constantly drawing our attention to it in our smartphone. Now those smartphones that we hold and we possess, they have more processing power than the Apollo 11 rocket, or sorry, the Apollo 11 computers on the rocket that took Lance Armstrong, or Lance Armstrong, <laughs> the cyclist, <laughs> Neil Armstrong and his mates to the moon. Now take for example iPhones. They have over 100,000 times more processing power than those computers on the Apollo 11. They have four gigabyte of RAM, which means they've over half a million times more memory. They have 512 gigabyte of storage, which means, believe it or not, they have over seven million times more storage. The iPhone in your pocket, the Android in your pocket, has over seven million times more storage than the computers on the rocket that took the first flight to the moon. I need to get the words out there. And I'm unsure that anyone who was standing there witnessing the Apollo 11 on the 16th of July 1969 would ever have believed that a device that, a device that you can carry in your hand and one that fits so ergonomically in the palm of your hands could have more processing power than the computers that would attempt to navigate a rocket to the moon and back. So what really is the point of my ramblings? Well, it is this. In a world where 84% of the population own a smartphone, and over 91% own a mobile phone. That creates over 10 billion mobile connections worldwide. Let's put that into context. There are roughly 7.8 billion people in the world. So that means that there is more than 2 billion more mobile connections than there are people on this planet. We've never been more connected. But what happens when we become too dependent on our mobile phones? Well, according to the MIT psychologist Sherry Turkle, 
the author of the book Reclaiming Conversation, we lose our ability to have a deeper, more spontaneous conversation with others, changing the way and the nature of our social interactions in alarming ways. Turkle spent over 20 years studying the impacts of technology and how we behave alone in and how we believe how we behave alone and in groups. I think I'm getting too excited, that's why I'm modeling up my words. Though initially excited by technology's potential to transform society for the better, she has become increasingly worried about how new technologies, cell phones in particular, are eroding the social fabric of our communities. In her previous book, The Best Selling Alone Together, she articulated her fears that technology was making us feel more and more isolated, even as it promised to make us more connected. Since that book came out in 2012, technology has been even more ubiquitous and entwined with the modern existence. Reclaiming Conversation is Turkle's call to take a closer look at the social effects of cell phones and to kind of realign ourselves with the role of conversation in everyday life. Turkle gave one interview uh, to a magazine and it, it was absolutely fascinating. She basically quote, as quoted as saying is that 89% of Americans say that during the last social interaction, they looked at their phone and they took it out and 82% said it deteriorated the conversation they were in. Basically, we're doing something that we know is hurting our interactions. She points to a study and says that if you put a cell phone in a social interaction, it does two things. First, it decreases the quality of what you talk about. Because you talk about things where you wouldn't mind being interrupted, which makes sense. And secondly, it decreases the empathetic connection that people feel towards each other. So even something as simple as going for lunch and putting a cell phone on the table decreases the emotional importance of what people are willing to talk about. And it decreases the connection that the two people feel toward one another. And to that end, that's why I feel, even though we live in the most interconnected time in our species history, and the very device that has been created to keep us connected is actually helping us lose connection. And breathe. And I, believe, I do feel that got quite deep there. And I did get quite excited. I muddled up a few of my words. That's what I do when I get excited. But I want to close off the episode by sharing a poem with you that I've written. And it's called Connection is Lost. I do hope that you found the ramblings in this episode somewhat interesting. Some people may be turned off straight away as soon as I talk about psychology or research. But let's hope you've listened to this point. Thank you once again for listening. I will hopefully get another episode out next week. But for now, here is the poem that I promised called Connection Lost. Connection is lost. I can't connect. It's concerning that I'm having to relearn to separate reality from virtual reality. This burning desire is unnerving. I can't disconnect from the very thing that is supposed to help me feel connected. It consumes my concentration, provides a shot of endorphins that I need for validation. Like I'm morphing into the metaverse, these feelings are hard to reverse. But without that connection to the thing that helps me feel connected, I fear I will burst. As my self-image dissipates at this rate, I will be left trying to relate to a version of myself I'm too often forced to hate. The art of conversation is being lost on us all. Emojis and shorthand, abbreviations all in your hand. When will we understand the level of damage? How divisive these devices continue to be, connecting us maybe, but rejecting us really. Not rejection in the sense that we can't get in, but not allowing us to leave. 
having us to believe that this is an exclusive club, playing on our FOMO, asking us to reload like those likes, shares, follows and loaded comments is lining the pockets of the wealthy healthy.